Hello and welcome back everybody to the OrthoTalk podcast episode number 23. This week we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Lisa Canada. Dr. Canada is an orthopedic traumatologist, but she is much more than that. She's had a very illustrious career. She has served as the first female chair of the AOS Board of Directors, Board of Specialty Societies. She is a former president of the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society. She's published over 130 research papers, two textbooks. She has mentored numerous, numerous medical students and residents. Uh, she has, if, if there's if there's a position in orthopedics or a society to be on, she has done it. She has been there, done that. And on top of all of that, she has a thriving family life. She is a mother to a Division One athlete, and she has been able to balance both work and family in a very special way. And we talk about that. We talk about women in orthopedics, mentoring women in orthopedics, how to get more, more women into orthopedics. And then we just talk about general practice things like like how how to deal with being in practice for the first time and some of the troubles that we've been facing and she gives us her advice on that so hope you guys enjoy it hope you guys get a lot out of this i know we did and without further ado dr lisa canada hey can we time out all right all good dudes stop what you're doing this is time out this is the ortho talk podcast today we're doing a real conversation with an illustrious guest surgeons today are Asith Khalid and jay chen Antibiotics, ANSEF, of course, what do we even ask? Fire risk, high due to lit conversations and explosive topics. Any questions or concerns? Nope. All right, we can go. Incision. Welcome to the Ortho Talk podcast. This is episode number 23, lucky number 23. We have with us a very special guest, uh, Dr. Lisa Canada. Uh, Dr. Canada is a practicing orthopedic traumatologist. Uh, she also served on the board of the AOS and also the OTA board, and she was the past president of the Ruth Jackson Society as well. Uh, so welcome, Dr. Canada. Thank you for having me, and thank you for doing something like this for our young folks. That's awesome. So the first time I heard you talk was probably a year and a half ago. You came down to, to UTMB uh, to give us the grand rounds. Sunny yeah. Galveston, Texas. Exactly. I know. It was cold there then. Was it? <laughs> yeah. And I remember, you know, you gave a talk on, on amputation, but what stuck out to me too was how, how important your, your family was to you. You talked a little bit about your family and how, and how that was such a big part of your life. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you about was about work-life, work-family balance, and you're, you're so accomplished. How, how have you been able to do all these things while keeping a good family balance? Uh, well, I'm very blessed. First of all, I have, uh, I've been married for 31 years to my husband. I have a daughter that's 15. So we waited several years uh, before we had kids so that we were more established. Uh, I think it's important that you realize no matter how many patients you stay for, and I was very guilty of this early on, I stayed, I would go in on my days off and I would operate. And the, uh, and when in the end, all you have is your family. And that is what your legacy is. I want to think my legacy is orthopedics, but also what I pass on is my daughter and how she, uh, and her legacy. And she's able to do that by having parents that love her. And I might be very busy and I never ever pressured her into being a uh, doctor, but here she is, she's 15 years old, a division one recruit that wants to be a surgeon now. That's awesome. Uh, so I think you lead by example 
and make the best use of your time. And I have some tricks for that as this podcast goes on, but never forget your family. And in my car, I call my parents. I lost my dad a year ago. My dad was 90. He was a doctor. I called him every day driving home. Never forget your family's the one that stood by you when you were waiting to get in medical school. Your family's the one that waits for you when you are working late. Your family is always there for you. Yeah, so I actually have two thoughts on that. One, that it seems like a trait of highly successful people and our chairman at UTMB did this too, Ron Lindsay, is they do yes. all their phone calls in the car. <laughs> he would, right. every, every phone call I ever got from Dr. Lindsay was while he was driving either to or from work from Houston. So that's number one. Number two, I don't, you, you might not, I, you probably know this, but <clears throat> your situation is, you're, you're kind of the role model against this stigma that is often used to keep women applicants out of orthopedics. And that's that you can't have a family life and be a surgeon or a good surgeon or a you know good doctor at the same time, especially in orthopedics. And your situation kind of breaks that. And I, I think it's it's an overplayed, over-dramatized situation, especially nowadays, because there's there's a lot of people like you who have very successful family lives, are very involved in their family, and are also very good surgeons and do a great job at work too. So um you know, I, I think it's it's great to share your situation out there with the world that you can you can do both and you can have both the best of both worlds too. And it doesn't I guess yes. it doesn't mean it doesn't mean you, you don't have to make sacrifices either way, but there's a balance to it, right? Right. And when you get straight home from work, gosh, instead of sitting down, the first thing I end up doing, you know, I throw my stuff down and I cook dinner and we sit and have dinner. Yeah. Uh, and it might be eight o'clock at night some nights, but you know. Then I do my work later when my daughter's taking her shower after soccer practice, or I get up uh, when I have a busy week, I get up at, you know, four o'clock so I can get more things done. I mean, you just plan and uh, make sure that your family sees you not buried in your computer or on your phone all the time. Yeah, I think that's another key thing that you mentioned is like keep family family and keep work work, right? So you're not bringing work home to family. You're not spending your family time on your computer doing research or writing a paper, or, you know, doing that kind of stuff. You know, your family time is dedicated for your family. Your work time is dedicated for your work and you find the balance in between. Is that is that fair to say? It is and it's fair. I, I think one of the best times we all complain about the OR turnover. Instead yeah. of complaining, use that for your advantage. Yep. I call myself a bag lady and that I always carry a bag of work to do. Yeah. Uh, in that, I have work that I always can do. You're in the operating room and say they can't get their art line or you know they're taking long for the intubation or for setups, whatever. I can use 20 minutes. I can think of what you can get done mm -hmm. in that time. So I always have a bag with work to be done uh, whether it's articles to review, whether it's my laptop so I can uh, go through or whether I log into the EPIC system or whatever electronic medical record system you use and sign my charts or pre-chart for clinic, you know, just always uh, try and take advantage uh, of the time you have. All that OR time, yep. instead of sitting, it would be great to sit and socialize, but if you realize you have a family waiting for you at home, then you take advantage of the time while still making sure you know everyone's name, making them feel special and talking to them during the day. Then they're gonna understand when you're busy 
uh, in between cases and doing other things. They won't feel slighted if you always acknowledge them on a regular basis. So one of my, uh, I guess one of the only tactics or tricks I had in residency to, to balance family time was I always tried to make 5 p.m. to 8 p.m., which is when my kids were awake. Uh, you know, during that time, I tried to put down everything work-related and everything non-family uh, related. Um, and that seemed to work for, for a bit. Uh, but do you have any other tricks? You know, once you're at home, how do you stay focused on, on what's in front of you instead of you know, when you're in training, your mind's wandering on what should I read tonight? Should I get ready for those cases tomorrow? Should I do these research projects in order to graduate? Like, what, what tricks do you have at home? Uh, so when I'm, I actually start out each day by having a list and prioritizing. Uh, and uh, that list now with your smartphones can be right on your smartphone so that you can clear it as soon as you get it done. And that always is refreshing by clearing and getting it done. And one thing I also learned around the home, at first I wanted to, you know, do everything, clean the house. You can't clean the house yourself. You, you need to get someone that can help you. You need to source out certain aspects of your life that make it easier. Can you order now? We can order your groceries so yeah. that you don't have to spend a lot of time going to the grocery store. So it's, I think living by lists will help you get things done. Uh, and it also gives you more time. You know, I get my subscribe and save from Amazon regularly, so I don't have to go fight the crowds at the store. Right. Uh, so, you know, you find little things, especially with today's technology and advances that make your life easy and anything that can give that look at that as an extra 15 minutes with your family because you found a way to do it, you know, another way to source out uh, an activity that really doesn't cost anything. They deliver right. for free. Right. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a, it brings up the whole time value of money concept, right? And we're, we're all in a very lucky position to be in a specialty or a job that pays us well enough to do that. Right. So it, it's really, it's, it's, it's about what matters to you. You're right. It's all about priorities, right? Do I want to go spend the 30 minutes to an hour? For me, it's like an hour at the grocery store, like browsing produce, or do I want to spend that time with family, right? Or doing something else that I like to do, going to the gym or, you know, taking me time. So yeah, it's a good point. And um, I think we're lucky to be and be, be reimbursed in the sense that we could do that. So. Right. I feel like you must have a whole like hidden book of life hacks. <laughs> like, make life super efficient. Um, I just try to be, but, you know, think about it. Uh, you know, if you're worried about getting exercise in, take the stairs instead of the elevator at work and, uh, you're worried about your health, bring your food, uh, you know, yeah. with all those services that exist. And, you know, I know one of the worst habits is that everyone tells you is never eat at your desk. But unfortunately, I do because yeah. that gives me extra time. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually started doing that either. Now, I, I don't know if you know our situation. We both just started practice. So we are within probably our first, Jay, you might be a little over a month. I'm this just under five, a month. Week five for me. Yeah, this is week, week four for me. So that is one of the things I learned is I have just enough time in my lunch break to go home, take the dog out, pick up some food from my fridge, bring it back to my desk and eat it while I'm waiting for patients to get roomed in the afternoon. So we're, we're starting to get this, get this uh, rhythm going and it's, it's been helpful. That's what it is. Just get a rhythm. Uh, get some, you know, and when you first start out, it's different. So if you first start out and spend a lot of time on that downtime between cases, making sure you're in the operating room, making sure the OR mm. has what you need, building those relationships. Once you have those relationships built, 
you go in, you don't have to go through all those steps every time. So there's an extra 10 minutes. They yeah. know what you want. Yeah. So it's just building up reserves in your bank. And that's what you do. You spend that time early. And then uh, sure enough, in between, someone's going to help you out. They're going to say, I know he's doing yeah. this case or she's doing this case and she wants that. She showed us that before. Mm -hmm. uh, make it easy on them because then that's, you know, and that's easy on you then. Yeah, so you're absolutely that's right. in the OR that you can do. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's like investing time now to save you time in the future. Right, right? it like, does. So and you have to do that the first six months oh, yeah. in practice. Yeah. You have to invest the time. Yeah. But, you know, six months from now, you'll be happy. Yeah. And Jay, you're, you're a little lucky because they kind of know you're, you're at an academic center where they know everything. I'm at a community hospital that hasn't had an orthopedic surgeon in years. So like, for example, yesterday, I, I had a case booked. It was a tibial nail and we go, it's an add on at the end of the day, we go in and they had pulled everything for a femoral nail. And, you know, we told them like, you know, I don't need the shower curtain. I don't need all this stuff. Here's, this is the sets I need. So, I mean, you know, it obviously costs us a little bit, but you know, we, we showed them and then we had a meeting today during lunch and they're like, you know, we don't have any preference cards for you. So I'm like, well, I sent over a bunch of preference cards over the summer. They're like, what? You did? They didn't believe me. So I sent them again. Like, yeah, you know, we had compiled all these preference cards just based off other surgeons. And we were looking at them this morning in our staff meeting. And, you know, your shoulder arthroscopy preference card has penile implants listed on it. And we have no idea why. <laughs> so, yeah. so you're right. Never, this is Yeah. So that you bring up a good point, the preference cards. I suggest when you start practice, you print your preference cards uh -huh. if they don't have any for you. So when you're doing a case, just have several, bring it and then yep. say, here, here's what I, you know, and change it, look at it. If it says that implant that you don't yeah. need, uh, <laughs> then you cross that off, but you rebuild it. So then it gets put into the computer. If yeah. you're helping them, uh, like I said, the first six months, really involves extra investment of time to give you more time six yeah. months down the road. Yeah. So print out your preference cards and when, and I recommend everyone in their fellowships, make sure you start getting together your preference oh, yeah. cards. Because yeah. they're gonna ask you how you drape, what you wanna close with, mm -hmm. what kind of needle. Uh, oh, do you want that 2 Vicro on a, you know, CT1? And then you're like, wait, yep. what, what do I, I'll take any needle. Yep. No, you don't, because then that needle doesn't work for the distal radius you're closing. Yeah. So always uh, start early and, uh, you know, just being organized is very key. What, what would you say to, I get this question sometimes, I see the situation a lot, to, uh, to residents and fellows who, when you're in training, your mentality is to, do as much as you can, see as much as you can. And, you know, we know residents who, you know, they'll scrub as many extra cases as they possibly can. And, you know, to some extent uh, that takes away time from, from family, you know, if they have families. So how do you balance trying to maximize your education, you know, with your obligations that, that may be at home? Well, that's a good question. You have to think about what your goals are and what your fellowship is going to do. So as a resident, I mean, I'd say in your fellowship year, make all the sacrifices because you're in your specialty and there's so much to learn from. And it's also different in your fellowship year because you have a variety of attendings that are different than someone you were used to for five years. And you're also more advanced in your training so you may pick up subtle variances that will help make you a better surgeon. In your residency, do it at, uh, you know, in your specialty or what you're gonna be practicing in in a community practice, you've got to be able to see things in the ER efficiently. 
And you know what? When we're chiefs, we hate going down to the emergency room. It might behoove you to go down and see uh, how things work in the emergency room and what the ER is capable of doing when you dreaded going down in your first and second year. You might have to reestablish. So think about the big picture is what I is what I suggest. And in residency, I mean, everyone hated doing spine. Uh, but if you're going to have to do discs in a general practice, then you want to scrub in on those cases. You don't need to scrub in on the complex deformity cases for those extra hours. But think about how is this going to help me in my practice? What can I learn? And that's what you have the beauty of as you're a fourth and fifth year resident. What can I learn from this? Because you have some experience to build on and you also know where you want to go then. Those are, those are good thoughts for sure. Um, so changing, changing topics now. So as we, you know, as we all know, women make up 6% of orthopedic surgeons in the United States. And this is kind of an issue that's been going on for, for many, many years. And it just doesn't seem to really, really improve. You know, out of U.S. residents, women make up about 14%, which is probably, I think it's the lowest percentage of all specialties, according to the AMA. Um, so, so what are the, what are the barriers that keep women out of ortho from, wanting to apply maybe? What are, what are some of the issues that are, that are leading to these stats? So that's a very good question. And we've been trying to solve the problem for a long time. But, you know, everyone says, I want everyone to look at the glass as being half full, not half empty. When we say we've been at 14% and we're the lowest percentage, that is, you know, we are one of the lowest two percentages. 14% for the last six, seven years, that's true. But the number of residents has increased by over 70 in the last seven years. So, you know, even though we're at 14%, we're still training more women. Um, I don't ever think that it's, you know, uh, in my lifetime that we would reach the critical value of 25% or more, like people want to make a difference. But I think we have made progress. And I think the biggest barrier is the culture. So that's why people don't want to, you know, why there's barriers. It's the culture that exists and it's the young people that are the most effective in changing this because uh, the older folks aren't gonna change their ways. Uh, and we can't, and you know, they get away with a lot more than you guys have any tolerance for uh, or even would accept. So I think that we need to uh, realize we have made progress and 14% might be low, but that number does increase every year because the number of residents increases every year. We need to create opportunities and make women feel welcome and try and change the culture so that bullying, harassment, and sexual harassment aren't tolerated in orthopedics or in medicine. Uh, but we can definitely do it in orthopedics. And we also got a sponsor. Women need sponsors. Behind every woman, there isn't another woman that's always going to help her. It needs to be men that see uh, the value and sponsor a woman and mentor a woman. So that's what I encourage. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I saw, I think a paper, I had to find the reference. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it quoted a very high percentage of sexual harassment amongst uh, female medical students, like, like 80% plus, I think was the number. It's very high. The national, NASM was a, a 
National Report of the National Academy of Sciences and Engineering and Medicine, and it was more than half of female medical students were har sexually harassed. Yeah, and that that number blew my mind because I, you know, I, I knew it was a problem, but I had no idea how prevalent it actually is. And you know, the, you know the the people out there will, will argue, oh, you know, they're just being sensitive, they're just doing this. But at the end of the day, does it really matter if someone feels harassed? It's sexual harassment, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. So, you know, that you're right. It, the, the culture, I think, is too accepting of certain things that, that, that honestly, men don't see as sexual harassment. Like, you know, just slight comments here and there or um, comments about dress or looks and things like that, that you might seem innocuous, but people, people take to heart and feel that they're being singled out for that stuff. So, yeah, I think you're right. Then I think the culture has shifted now to where instead of blatant sexism, and racism it's a lot of it is subtle and it, it's you're right people don't think subtle, about, it's microaggressions right. it's terms that are being used and we need to actually have people that stand up and right. don't let that we need bystander training right, so right. That people that witness it can learn how to get the individual who is being bullied or harassed out of the situation or uh, help them in that situation uh, and know that they're supported. Yeah, I mean, it, I would, so, oh, go ahead, Jay. Oh, nothing. I, I was just going to say, I, yeah, I bet that number is an underestimate too. It's it probably is. still it completely underreported. So it's probably closer to ninety plus or hundred percent. I would, you know. Um, I, I was wondering what I haven't talked I to. Know. I haven't talked to a woman who has not felt sexually harassed at some point in in medicine. So I, yeah, I totally agree. I think, I think it's probably closer to 95 to 100%. Yeah, the two disturbing characteristics, even the Academy had their survey uh, recently published. And the biggest thing is the occurrence is more than once. It's repetitive. Yeah. And yeah. also many people never report it because they fear retaliation. Uh, so that's the biggest problem. It's repetitive and they don't feel like they can do anything about it. That's why we need to learn and train people how to deal with these situations and how to be a bystander that helps without creating harm to anybody. Yeah, so, so let, me, let me bring up an example because we had an example of this yesterday. It was not, not uh, orthopedist, but like, like I said, I was doing a trauma case later, later yesterday um, and our uh, trauma rep was a female, young female. And I wasn't in the room, but I was around um, you know, getting ready to scrub in and, you know, I start scrubbing, she comes out, she's and jo just jokingly about it. I was talking to the other, the senior rep that was with her and brought her down. And she said, oh yeah, I came in and the, they're all looking at me and asked me if I was the x-ray tech. And then, you know, everyone's just like, oh, she's like, no, I told him I'm the, I'm the trauma rep here. And, uh, you know, it's, it's that obviously that happens all the time, right? Nursing, right. they mistake you as a nurse or mistake you as a medical student or, you know, things like that. So, so in that situation, what, what do, what do you do? What's the ideal approach to, uh, to fixing something like that as a bystander? So uh, one of the approaches as a bystander, uh, you know, I'll uh, give an example, you know, you said the trauma rep. So what you want to do then, what you can do in the timeout for the case mm -hmm. is identify everybody. Uh, and then when she is identified, and say, uh, you know, we appreciate and also try and give her praise during the case as a bystander. So you don't have to do the it's if it, if the situation's very bad, you do have to act more uh, 
acutely. And some people say, if there's a bad situation, just drop your coffee or something mm -hmm. uh, or trip or draw, do something to draw attention away. Something very, you know, cough, even pick your nose. I mean, do something <laughs> to get the attention away if it's really bad. If it's not bad, what you can do is recognize them and compliment them and make sure that everyone else knows who they are. So the perfect example of doing that in the operating room is a timeout uh, and asking who everyone is and uh, thanking them profusely and referring to them uh, during the case. So therefore you're empowering them. Do you see what I'm yep. saying? Yep. So you're yep. giving, you're you. empowering her. Another example that often happens, and you might see this, is uh, females often, the males get involved, get introduced as doctor, women get introduced by their first name. Right. Yep. Uh, and that happens every day. So one of the ways that we deal with it uh, is we do say, uh, we, uh, you know, you pointed out, I see that you refer to this individual as doctor. If you could uh, refer to all of us by our title, that's what we're doing on this committee. It would be great. Uh, and we're asking you to be a part of the solution, not part of the problem that women have. You know, just very subtle ways. Uh, and you can do it through an email later on, but there are ways you have to point it out, but point it out nicely and yeah. empower the individuals that were disempowered. That's the other way. Yeah, I think, I think you bring up a good point about being subtle with it, right? Because the, the, at the end of the day, the day, a lot of this pushback comes from people becoming defensive and saying, oh, I'm not a sexist. Oh, I'm not a racist. Like, you know, yeah. I, I value everyone. Nobody wants to be that person, even though, you know, you're doing things that you don't realize are that person. So I think, I think you're right. A lot of this has to be subtle. It has to make the pe person not feel embarrassed Right, like I don't think public shaming is the answer for obviously unless it's no, like no, it something, isn't. That's why right. you do look right, another right. way. No, yeah, uh, I totally or agree. Do with something. You. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with you. Nobody wants to be shamed for it. It's just it's, it's got to be subtle, and it's the small changes I think that over time accumulate into cultural shifts, right? And that's what we're trying to. They get. do. I, I agree. We aren't going to do it overnight. We have to start, and I believe that this generation coming out, you guys just starting to have the biggest influence on our future. Personally, I feel I feel pretty pretty optimistic even just a lot of these issues I, I wasn't even aware of a few a few years ago, you know, what, what women and even minorities go through. Being a being a minority myself, I wasn't even aware of what, what was going on sometimes. Um, but I feel like the example you gave uh, referring to to women trainees as as doctor you know, right now my resident uh, on services is a female and I'm, I'm very intentional to call her. This is Dr. So-and-so, she's my chief resident. Whereas before, a few years ago, I wouldn't have even, that wouldn't have even crossed my mind. You know, maybe I would have called her doctor, maybe I wouldn't, but I definitely would not have understood the importance of it. So, uh, so I do feel like we're making, making progress against, against some of these subtle, maybe implicit things. Um, what would you say, so we've seen situations where were trainees who are not in a in a position of power, you know, they're with uh, maybe attendings or seniors, um, and it's a group of guys, and then they make the the older people who are in the position of power they make comments about, you know, female surgeons, and you're in the position of a of a younger guy who does not have power. How do you how should you act in that situation? So uh, one of the things that you could do would be point out, uh, perhaps you were trained, you know, it, it's hard 
it's hard because you feel like you've got to gain acceptance, but you can give an example of uh, even say the talk I gave on amputations. Well, I learned a great tip on amputations from Dr. Lisa Canada, uh, and that's what I use in my practice. So you show that you support women and that will, uh, they're gonna get it eventually. They aren't that dense. Yeah. Uh, so you indicate that you were trained by someone or you remember a lecture or you read a uh, paper by a female uh, or a minority uh, that opened your eyes. For example, you might, uh, there's a lot uh, of uh, information, a lot of, uh, in AOS now, we have a lot of articles on diversity and you could point out something that you learned from one of those articles on uh, diversity, including the racial uh, how black and brown residents are feeling. So you could bring that up so that it lets people know that you're well-rounded and don't have these implicit biases. And you, when you, when you make that point, I just, I, you made me realize that in every journal club I've ever had, Jay, you can correct, add to this too. I have never, we have never discussed an article regarding diversity in medicine. I have never, have That's you, right. I, no, I have never, never had one in a journal club. And so we've done, start bringing it yeah, out. Exactly, the time right. is now. Yeah. Good idea. I mean, yeah, we've done everything right. else, right? We've done business. We've done reimbursement. We've done, you know, right. CPT codes all and outside of normal orthopedics. We've never had one on diversity. So you should invite. And actually, the ACGME does promote diversity. Yeah. So now that would be something uh, that is important to get talks on. You know, right. find someone that can talk on it. And most uh, institutions now are having a diversity and inclusion officer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, so we, I'd be, we'd be, you know, we with all this talk on diversity, we have to, we have to ask you about the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society, and because honestly, for me, this is something that I learned about within the last year. I had no idea this existed until really 2020. So just from your standpoint, what is it? Uh, what does it promote? Who should who should get involved? That all that kind of stuff. Well, that's great. Uh, the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society is one of the orthopedic specialty societies. There's actually 23 orthopedic specialty societies. And there's uh, a few, uh, the Ruth Jackson and the J. Robert Gladden Orthopedic Society, which are uh, promote uh, gender and uh, ethnic races uh, and in orthopedics. The Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society now has grown to over a thousand members. We do have male members. It supports uh, definitely, it's known as the Society for Women in Medicine, and the J. Robert Gladden Society is known for minorities in medicine. However, uh, the, it's much more than that. We promote mentorship. We promote education. Uh, we uh, have male members, male members on our board, uh, and uh, we want to represent women uh, and their, uh, in their quest for being recognized. Uh, and it, and improving the numbers in orthopedics. So for example, Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society has grants for medical students to come to the meetings. Uh, they have research grants uh, for residents and uh, in your first couple years of practice, they have traveling grants. So someone who is just starting out can go uh, learn from a mentor that they might not have learned from during their fellowship or gain extra training in an area, uh, they uh, have books. We uh, have 
the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society Guide for Women in Orthopedics. And just this year, we came out with the Medical Student Guide for Orthopedic Surgery, which is the first uh, book of its kind. Uh, but it's not just for women. It's a resource guide for all, uh, offering 17 chapters alone, just on tips for medical students who want to do orthopedics. Uh, and they have an education meeting every year uh, and have representation uh, in the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and also work with J. Robert Gladden Society and Nth Dimensions and also the Latino orthopedic surgeons uh, in making sure uh, we have statements and representation on uh, important topics. That's great. So it sounds like this, this is a, a huge thing. I'm, I'm with, I'm with uh, Dr. Khalid too. I, I hadn't heard about this until, until a few years ago as well, but have you seen have you seen the numbers expand a lot recently in these societies? Is this something that as yes. of now is coming? Yep. Oh, 100%. When I was president of Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society several years ago, we were 400. Now oh, wow. we're over 1,000 members. So wow. that's so encouraging. Uh, and to see that we're increasing every year. So, uh, you know, uh, I think there's power in numbers. Uh, and I think that we have to realize that uh, just helping one person if they go, you know, resident, I look at residents, residents are like the gift that keeps giving because if you help someone and train them as a resident, and this goes to mentoring also, they're gonna go to their fellowship, to their job, uh, to meetings and say they learned from mm -hmm. you. And that's a gift that keeps giving back and is a reflection of you and the time you spend with them. So I look at, I, I love mentoring. So that brings up, you know, mentoring. I look yeah. at, medical students and residents and everyone as a gift that keeps on growing. And I don't expect any credit. I just want to see someone else thrive. And that's why I uh, think it's really important that we all help others. So let's talk about mentoring then, because this is, I think we've talked about this maybe once on this podcast with Ned Amendola. Right. Dr. Amendola, yeah. yeah. And uh, so in your, in your opinion, in your experience, what makes a good mentor? So mentors come in many shapes and forms. There's not one size that fits all. There's mentors for different aspects of your career, uh, whether it could be just surgical skills, whether it could be business skills, whether it could be professional relations, whether it could be research or professional growth. Uh, the most important thing is in a mentor-mentee relationship that the mentor take time mm -hmm. to get to know the individual. Because if you don't take the time to get to know the individual and what their goals are, then you aren't gonna be able to help them. So a mentor truly needs to be an excellent listener and a mentor needs to be, I almost call it like the wind beneath my wings. Mm -hmm. You know, There's that movie and song and what it is is you thrive on how they grow. And that's what I believe any relationship as a mentor or mentee should be. A mentor should be the one that wants to just like, hey, yeah. here you are, you know, and uh, let you go, but you gave them the strength to do that or the knowledge that they need. So I think it really involves being a good listener uh, and also being objective. You can't just blow smoke up someone. Mm -hmm. You know, if they do need some help, you need to help them. If, uh, and that goes with, you know, when we're talking to medical students about whether they could match yeah. You have to be honest and tell some people they need to develop an alternate plan 
or that they're the best candidate for a community program versus, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a program in a big city, you know, you just have to be realistic. So a mentor is someone that listens and is honest and uh, thrives in seeing their mentee grow. Yeah, no, I, I, I really like your point about how not every mentor-mentee relationship is the same. And like, I, I've been experiencing that recently because, you know, I, I did a sports fellowship and I'm doing trauma cases I haven't done in three or four years right now. <laughs> you know, oh, so I'll, I, I'll be happy to help you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm like, I've become a generalist, right? So, you know, there's some, there's some like, like one of my fellowship attendings I'm, I'm pretty close with, but I don't listen to everything he tells me to do, right? Like I, I did a, uh, I did a biceps button for my uh, biceps handiest on a shoulder scope. And he started making fun of me for it. So we spent the last day arguing about the, the benefits of doing that versus the screw. But then there's some like some of my residency uh, or yeah, residency attendings who I'll ask, you know, their, their opinion on a trauma case and I'll do whatever they say. Cause I know, I know like, you know, they, they've been through it. They know what they're like, I'll, I'll follow that to a T. So you're right. It, it's totally different. Uh, and it, it's just like every other relationship you have with a person, right? I, I mean, no two friendships are the same. No two mentors are the same. I think it's a great point. Yes. If you're, if you're a medical student or even a resident and there's someone you look up to and you would like to develop that mentor-mentee relationship with them, um, is there a way to bring that about or is it supposed to be all natural? Is there something, you know, do you, do you ask them? Like, how do you establish that relationship? Yeah, I, you know... I, I think that's a good point, you know, because many times they're intimidated, but I think uh, if you reach out and then that person, if they do want to be your mentor, you know, I think to come with an ask is what you want to do. Uh, to, you know, unfortunately, um, sometimes people want to know what the ultimate goal is. So, uh, you know, I always call it the power of threes, you know, you always talk in threes. So, you know, a hi, I am so-and-so, this is what I, uh, I, you know, give the person a compliment and then this is what I'd like. So there's three things, right? A little bit about yourself, three senses, three senses about why you looked up to them and three senses as to what you want to get out of this. So the power of threes, because uh, people are busy and I think that's a really good way and be respectful of their time. Uh, and when you do have the meeting and chance, uh, you know, just, Pay attention to them. Put your phones down and forget about it. Just enjoy the interaction that you're having, and that's when uh, relationships grow. Nice. I, I like that. And for anyone listening, I, I thrive on compliments. So, so if you can tell me. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> that's, well, that's what that's, I say. You always great. like, you know, I. This is me. This is what I like about you, and yeah. this is what I want to get out of this. That's awesome. Um, so we talked about kind of what makes a good mentor. Is there such thing as a good mentee? Uh, yes, uh, there is. And that's what helps relationships grow. A good mentee is someone that's respectful uh, uh, and provides also feedback. Say, I took your advice on uh, developing this study habit. So therefore I was able to pass my anatomy exam. You told me to review it this way, so I did, or to look at this video, so I did. And so the mentee uh, is respectful of the mentor and also lets them know how they're affecting their life. That is a good mentee. Nice. If I could, if I could circle back to um, specifically 
like female medical students and being a male mentor for a female medical student. I'd say, I think, and from, from people I've talked to, that's a scary position for a lot of people, right? How do you, how do you overcome that fear and how do you be a good advocate for a female medical student as a male? That's a great question. And you're right there. And there is a recent uh, article uh, and there was a recent uh, symposium on that mentoring in the he for she mm -hmm. era. And also in the book for the Ruth Jackson guide uh, for medical students, there is a chapter on mentoring, which also covers that. So I'm giving you more references. Yeah. But what I think is really important in this era is uh, everything needs to be done in the open. Uh, you don't want any closed door meetings mm -hmm. uh, and you want in public and you don't want, it can be in the corner of the cafeteria. It could be in a Starbucks. That's, mm -hmm. no, that's easy. You meet people in Starbucks, right. you can meet right. and mentor in Starbucks. Uh, avoid any, you know, this is one time uh, where looking at the person in the eye and uh, also providing feedback that you understand what they're saying instead of putting your hand on them to touch them and mm -hmm. say, I, you know, hey, I understand. It's not that you say, well, you told me you're having uh, trouble on your clinical rotation. Uh, and then you repeat what they're saying to under to indicate that you understand without actually having to provide any physical contact. Uh, that's something uh, the location is important. Never have alcohol involved mm -hmm. uh, and always make a drink you know, daytime hours are really good. Yeah. There's always daytime hours. <laughs> so those are just some suggestions. It's hard, but yeah. males are, males definitely can be mentors to women uh, and males can grow from being a mentor to a woman. Right. Now, I, no, I, I don't, I'm not, I won't personally, I don't personally feel this way, but I know with you saying that there's a lot of people that would look at that and say, well, that's different, the differential treatment for women, right, as a male. Is that true? Uh, preferential treatment, no, it's just being smart and wise in this, in this era. And also I think we can learn from each other uh, through communication pathways and male and female, whether it's mentee or mentor, there's different communication uh, jargons and methods of males and females and they can learn from each other. Yeah, no, I agree. What kind of, um, you talked about earlier about being, being an advocate. Uh, what, is, what does it mean to be, to be an advocate? And how do, you, how, how do you become a good advocate for someone? Uh, you become a good advocate for someone by uh, sponsoring them uh, so that you're giving them opportunities. I think that's the biggest thing. You wanna give someone an opportunity, whether it's to do a surgical case, whether it's to give a presentation, whether it's to recommend their name for a committee, whether it's to invite them to come and speak uh, at your institution uh, or you know, nominate them for a position, those are advocates. So it's promotion. Uh, being an advocate is being a promoter of someone. This might be changing topics a little bit, but we mentioned committees a lot and I haven't been asked to be on one yet, but I know it's coming. How important is it to be on committees? Uh, you mean in your hospital? Yeah, yeah. So you have to think again, judge your time. So uh, first you can't say yes to everything, Yeah. Uh, but in a generalist practice and in a community, you uh -huh. have to uh, do something 
to contribute. So uh, the easiest way is to find something you're interested ahead of time and mm -hmm. see about getting on that so you don't get asked to be on something you don't want to be on. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, steer the ship. I, I like that idea. I yeah, try story. and <laughs> try and steer it in your direction so that you can contribute with something you have an interest and background in right. so that actually it's meaningful for you instead of being on the, you know, uh, fund development committee for the hospital <laughs> when you have no interest or background in that area. Right. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good, good piece of advice. How many committees are too many? I'm already on a couple. <laughs> I just started. <laughs> when you can't, when you miss too many meetings, when you start yeah. missing meetings and don't make a contribution, when yeah. it's too hard to be prepared for each of the meetings, if you, then it's too many. Yeah. I was, um, even before my contract date, I was appointed the chair of social media committee, which is a new committee that we formed. <laughs> and then today I find out that I'm on the marketing committee. <laughs> so I'm on, I guess the, the two committees are linked. So I guess it's okay. I can kind of do work for both of them at the same time. So, so I'm feeling good about it, but it's, it's well, kind of social funny. media, definitely the younger, you got you younger folks are great at social media. We can learn from you. <laughs> so you now you got a committee to join the social media for the hospital. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Find one. I'll be part of the hospital marketing group too. So great. <laughs> so uh, let's, let's talk about, uh, I want to talk about the pay, the pay gap, the gender pay gap. This is something that, you, you read about from time to time and people know it exists, but I don't know if many people delve into the reasons why, at least the, the lay person delves into the reason why this, this gender pay gap exists. So according to uh, multiple sources, between men and women orthopedic surgeons, the pay gap can be close to $150,000 annually. And that's, 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 a, that's a huge number. Like that's, that's pretty much half my salary almost. So, I mean, that's, that's insane to think about. What are, what are the reasons for this? So there's different reasons, you know, and I know people, one institution, both of them, same jobs, hired at the same time, and the guy made a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, so first of all, uh, one of it could be not asking for enough. That's one thing. I remember this is years ago, and I was given the lesson. I, I was like, oh my gosh, they wanted me to start at this much. And I grew up in a small rural town in Ohio. And I was like, oh my God, that's too much money. What am I going to do? And my, seriously, it's, I grew up in a steel mill town and worked really hard and never had that kind of life. And I was like, that's too much money. And my one attending said to me, well, if you think it's too much money, then just donate what you think is too much to others. So, you know, because what you ask for in your first job is going to determine your salary for the rest of your career. So 50% of orthopedic surgeons change jobs in their first two years. That statistic is out. Two to mm -hmm. three years, 50% change. What you ask for in your first job will determine it. That's number one. So you got to ask, know what the statistics are and ask for enough. Second of all, uh, there was a recent study that just came out in the past week at, from Harvard that showed that women do less complex cases. All that, yeah. So that was interesting too. So why is there, is it because of referral patterns? It, is it, what's the reason? And it didn't specify orthopedic surgeons, uh, but still that's something important to think about. Another thing is uh, maternity leave. Uh, and uh, if you're on a, 
sal not a salary, but you know, RVU basis and you take maternity leave and you, it's hard to really build back up. It's like starting a new practice mm -hmm. all over again after your maternity leave. So you have to think about those, as women have to think about that as they negotiate their contracts. So knowing the numbers, asking, starting strong will be key to having an uh, equitable salary the rest of your career. Is there anything, you know, so women, you know, they, they can know to, to ask for more of those things. Is there anything that we could do to help this pay, you know, the societal pay gap, I guess? So uh, it's more, so, you know, in university academic settings, pay is, you know, it's yeah. relatively uh, set. It's uh, developing a bonus, but in academics and then also the private practice world, developing an equitable bonus structure uh, that's attainable uh, based on the type of practice. For example, if your female partners are the pediatric or the hand surgeons, pediatric surgeons have to see three times as many patients to get mm -hmm. a single surgical case. But should they be penalized for that? Uh, so you have to think of a way to balance the salary that they get because they are being very productive in clinic. And you know you might not wanna be the productive one in clinic. They're seeing uh, you know, so many, pay or hand surgeons, you know, mm -hmm. they're doing their outpatient surgeries, uh, which are 15 minute cases and the reimbursement is different. So you have to think about each the specialties and what you want to do is set up if you're uh, involved, equitable, uh, equitable reimbursement uh, for the job that's done. And some of the intent, some of the jobs, social media, if you're doing a lot of time on social media and that brings more business, shouldn't you get reimbursed for that? Right, right. Good. Yeah. No, I think. <laughs> I like yeah. that. <laughs> no, I think uh, I think another thing that could help is transparency too, right? I don't think we have enough salary right. transparency, especially amongst surgeons in the same community. I don't know why that is. I, I feel like we're just scared to put our salaries out there, and I don't know what. Maybe we're scared that we're getting paid less than the guy next door, or the girl next door, and I don't know. I, I, it's it's kind of a weird situation, but maybe if there was some sort of transparency going on with salaries, and at least you could see what what the what. You, what equivalent surgeons in your area are making, and you could at least start there, right? I mean, that's the starting point. So. No, that is, but it's, sometimes that data is really hard to find. Yeah, yeah, and even the data will be skewed. So, I don't know. Um, it is. It, it's a tough problem to solve. Yeah. Yes. So do you? Well, we're very blessed and lucky. We have good jobs. Oh yeah, definitely, especially now. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. COVID, COVID kind of hit a lot of people hard in terms of that, and. Uh, Dr. Khalid was interviewing for one job and that uh, that got halted because of COVID. So yeah, totally we're worried about him for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think oh, it's, finding it's, a job. Yeah. This year's fellows, imagine how this year's uh -huh. fellows are feeling. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I, you know, we're having lots of uh, webinars for them on <laughs> how to find a job during a pandemic. I yeah. mean, it's completely different. So I remember, I remember this happened. You know, Jay signed a little earlier. I was still looking around for a job. Uh, I originally wanted an academic job and that's what I was aiming for right when the pandemic hit and then everything shut down. So I remember hearing a webinar and uh, I think it was an AOSSM webinar and the speaker was basically asked this question. It's like, how, how are we supposed to deal with the job search right now? And this might've been in April or May. He said, basically find a job, be happy with the job and just take the job you can right now. And I didn't really believe him at first. I, you know, I, I was still kind of hopeful about the pandemic and, 
I was thinking, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this goes. And I, I don't think it's that dire hospitals will start getting busy again. And, uh, so, you know, I, my strategy played out like that, being hopeful. So I took a locums contract and, uh, you know, I was, I was hoping, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in the fall. Maybe we'll get a vaccine. Maybe things will kind of slow down and um, we'll see if any other, you know, academic jobs open up and we'll see what happens. And here we are in November and things are still shut down and it looks like a second wave is coming in. So he was absolutely right. Take the job you can yeah. find a good one right now and uh this i mean i, I don't know our, our industry could be years and the years behind financially right. just trying to get out of this so um, right make the most of this situation right right yes. so yeah i i totally I, I totally see where he's coming from now but yeah, it, yeah. i was gonna say it's, it's funny how things work out right because now i'm here I, i'm actually pretty happy here i'm building up a practice i'm doing generalist work and it's not what i thought it would be but i can't i can't complain so I'm, I'm blessed to be where I am. That's right. And think of all those extra cases you did during oh, yeah. residency. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. A, yeah, always look for the bright side. We're very blessed. And, uh, you know, in this day and age, it is hard. And I know for the OTA meetings, since I'm a trauma surgeon, we're having our meeting in the next two weeks. And one of our sessions is how to find a job during a pandemic. And all residents and fellows can sign up for free for mm -hmm. the meeting. Uh, so... That's just another way. We have to look at it's being creative. Oh, yeah. This year, it's being creative too. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you say that? Going into your career. Okay. I was, was going to ask about you know, your personal career. You, you've changed jobs a few times. You've been to different places. What, uh, what led to those, those decisions to change jobs? And uh, kind of what, do you, what were you looking for? What do you look for when you're looking at a new job? I, it changes during your career. So yeah. before I just wanted to work with people who were prestigious and uh, who could help me build my career, but that's not always the best mentor. Uh, and my biggest thing I look for and recommend is looking for nice people uh, mm -hmm. because when you're happy, you can accomplish what you want and accomplish more. Uh, so uh, before it was... Uh, initially early in my career was working with people who had a reputation that could help me build my career. Uh, and then it was positions that uh, titles that I thought would be the best, uh, but it wasn't always with the nicest people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the biggest thing is nice people surrounding yourself with people that you want to go out with and meet with is, mm -hmm. uh, and that you can trust uh, and that you want to help them and they want to help you. That's the best partners. So I want, to, I want to circle back a little bit to what you said about getting in the ER and doing this stuff. And um, I think that's a very good point. And oh, I don't, it is. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think as when we're in residency that we appreciate the the troubles you have during residency, I don't think we appreciate them enough because we, we like to complain about it. Like, oh, they didn't have this or we didn't have that. And like, you know, I, I'll, I'll speak personally to it. Like, I thought I was going to go into an academic practice with a hospital that has everything I need and all this. And here I am in a community center that hasn't had orthopedics in forever. You know, I, this either sometime in the last few weeks, I had to put a traction pin in someone in the ER and I'm sitting there waiting for, you know, we're, we're trying to find the traction set up and um, we found out that they've thrown it all away two years ago because nobody was using yeah. it. So it's, this is all the things in residency that you complain about, but 
that ingenuity and residency comes back and it can help you later on. So, you know, Oh, definitely. Yeah. And always, <laughs> Hey, I still remember, I just use Curlex on the fingers yeah. or toes yeah. through an IV pole and reduce things. Right. And we, we uh, complain. Yeah. We complain about not having finger traps or not having yeah, your yeah. specific implant, but that, that, that flexibility, it, it's so valuable later on. And right. It, That's it what really I say. Helps. And it go, it helps when you go, when you have some background knowledge. Yeah. So that's why everyone that's a chief really should go down to the ER again, just to experience it. Just take call one yeah. night. Even. You, you, Cause you never know when the next time you're personally going to have right. to produce a shoulder or you're right. going to have to put in the traction pin or you're going to have to put the splint on, right? It could be and three speak, years. <laughs> and speaking of that, I did reduce a shoulder today. Oh, see, there right. you go. There you go. <laughs> even though I, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, they're like, you know, when the, a hospital head calls you and say, can you take care of this? I'm like, sure. Yeah. You know, it's not your pay, you know, not right. your patient, but you're going to be like, sure, you do it. You never know when your skills are needed. Yeah. And that's another great point is saying yes to things like that. Right. Right. Especially, especially being fresh into practice. I'm finding myself saying yes to a lot of stuff that yep. I would not normally say yes to like, Hey, can you see this patient with low back pain? Sure. Happy to. Or, hey, this, you know, this, I don't know what's going on with this patient. Uh, can you just come see them in the ER? Say, sure. Yes, happy to. Because, you know, you want to be the guy who fixes stuff. You want to be the guy who comes in and people can rely on you. And ultimately that builds your practice because more people will send you the stuff that you actually like later on. If they, they do. Yeah. I promise it works. Yeah. Yeah. So you build up chips in your bank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're, you're, you're putting deposits in for the future. Um, exactly. Yeah, my first my first month, uh, you know, I did a foot and ankle fellowship, and I've done more trauma cases than foot and ankle cases my first yeah. month, and that's kind of how how it works. Your your schedule is light at first in terms of elective stuff, so you have all the time in the world to clean up the trauma that comes in. So right. so those skills you learn in residency, all the trauma skills that you may or may not have thought you would need in the future, depending on what you envision your practice would be, they they end up coming in handy, and it's it's nice to have those skills. And then the other thing too is, you know, working with residents. Again, at my at my old program where I trained and where where you trained too, Mo. Um, you know as well as I do, residents can be they they can be a disgruntled bunch sometimes. And always, I, try to, <laughs> I, I was that resident. That's, that's, yeah, I try to I try to give them some perspective too, because all the stuff, just like you're saying, all the stuff in your program that may not be perfect. You know, they build skills and they build character. They build these things that you can use in the future. And the grass is not always greener. Like, so now you're, you're in a practice where you don't have a lot of things that you had yeah. in residency. And I, yeah. I'm very happy I, that everything was not perfect to my residency. Because yeah, exactly. I, you, you learn to adapt and you learn to deal with stuff. Exactly. Being adaptable is key and no job is perfect. That's right. the other thing. Yeah, exactly. You, you'll never be in a perfect situation for you. I, I tell the juniors when they when they interview for fellowship, this was my experience. When you interview for fellowship, and for the first time you're talking to residents from other programs, and you hear about what's like at their programs, you know, you, you they they often have it much worse than you sometimes. So just try to keep a positive positive attitude while you're in training. Always be positive. There's something to learn every day. There really is. Yeah. And from Absolutely. every case too. Even you know, it's it's. You know, if you're on a hand rotation and you're doing your 200th carpal tunnel for the rotation, I guarantee you when you're in practice and your day is full with three carpal tunnels and you did a sports fellowship, you're going to wish you had one more to see. And it's, yeah, I, I'm there. I'm there. I, I did my first oh, carpal exactly. tunnel in like four years yesterday. And it's, I wish I had one more to see to see how they did it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So I don't know. It's, it's been fun though. It's, it's definitely a learn. Do you, do you remember early in your practice? Oh, 
Yes. Yeah. And I just was working on a lecture and I was looking at some cases, even just from, I've been out 20 years. I was looking at cases from seven years ago uh -huh. and I was like, oh my gosh, I put those in lectures and thought they were good. <laughs> so I, I guess I just want to say there's always something to learn and learning is lifelong. Learning is career long. Uh, and, uh, you know, no cases, uh, no cases, you know, an easy, I never count on it being easy uh, because something could go wrong. So always think of the next case or the next step ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what could happen if this doesn't work? What's, what, what's my bailout gonna be? Or the next step in the case, what can I do if this doesn't work? You know, always try and think ahead, think more of the bigger picture uh, and uh, be humble. That's why, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I thought that case I put in lectures seven years ago. <laughs> and so I, I'm learning every day. Yeah, that's good. I've heard it. I've heard it said that it takes a few years of practice, you know, three to five years before people really hit their hit their stride. Is that what you experienced? Do you think? Is that uh, yeah, I think it does. Uh, especially because it's it's uh, you think about it. It's the preoperative uh, care, the postoperative care, the rehabilitation and everything else that goes into it. It's not just that, you know, uh, tibial nailing, it's everything else that leads up to it and follows it that makes you this, a better surgeon. Nice. Did you ever, did you ever have a feeling like, was there ever a moment where you felt like you look back and you were taking on cases that you probably shouldn't have? Like you were overly aggressive with stuff outside of your comfort zone? Oh yes, because you always want to look good. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I think the biggest thing uh, early on um, is being realistic about how long it takes you to do cases mm -hmm. will gain you the most credibility uh, in terms of, because you think the anesthesiologists they're in the same locker room as the other surgeons mm -hmm. are going to talk about you. Uh, they right. always do. Uh, might not be when you're, think, hopefully it won't be when you're on the other side of the lockers, but everyone talks. So I think the biggest thing is being realistic. And when you are in over your head, know when to ask for help and know when to bail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good advice. Uh, yeah, we had Dr. Somerson who came on earlier and he his advice was to post every case at the beginning for twice as long as you think it would take. 100%. And, and I'm, I'm finding that out to be true by myself. You know, we've, I've done a couple of really bad trimals and in my head, you know, if I'm going uh, with multiple approaches and go medial, I'm going posterior lateral, you know, I'm fixing four or five different fragments. I'm like, yeah, I can probably do that in two hours, two and a half hours. And then, you know, two and a half hours, certain time goes up. I'm like, I still got to fix this one other fragment and ends up taking, you know, three hours. And absolutely. I think that's, that's right to post right. for longer than you think. So. Always post for longer than you think, then you will look better by finishing earlier. Uh, and then it doesn't get anyone mad at you who's following yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, so yes, but when you're in over your head, know when to bail, know and never blame anyone else. If there's a mistake that happens in the operating room, it's you and don't go blaming everybody else in the room for it. Yeah. No, I, I've been dealing with that recently too, because I, you know, I, I usually like to book my own time for stuff and I try to book like, you know, rotator cuff three and a half, four hours. But the OR kind of books, but historically, so like recently we had a rotator cuff that they thought would take me an hour. I thought it would take me three hours. 
So we were talking about like why my cases were delayed. Oh, you know, your cuff took a little longer than it should have. I'm like, oh, I booked it for three hours. Like, no, no, we thought it was one hour. So you're right. It's, and that, that goes back to communication, right? Yes. It's all about communication. Yeah, and let the anesthesiologist know, hey, I'm getting towards closure, but this is like a 45 minute closure. This yeah. is a 20 minute closure. You know, just little things, just right. saying something out loud that lets the room know what's like goes far. Yeah. All right, Dr. Cannon, well, we've been an hour. Any parting words of wisdom? Always try to make the path better for those that follow. Nice. That's oh, that's it. great. Yeah, that's great. We have to ask her her favorite bone as well. Oh, the yeah. Femur. What, is your, what is your favorite Oh, the femur. Bone? Yes. The femur. The femur. <laughs> there you go. Yes. That, that's the common choice of, of the arthroplasty guests we've had. So, yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thank the you. Because there's so much you can do. It starts at the yeah. hip and goes to yeah. the knee. Oh my you can do everything. Gosh. So yeah. in my five weeks of practice, I've done an antebrain nail, a retrograde nail, a pinning, a hemiarthroplasty, <laughs> and a plating. So I fixed a femur five ways. In my <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what I mean. There's so many ways you can skin it. So yeah, that's yeah. why I love it. There's thank you for joining us. And it's yeah. a wonderful pleasure to talk with you no well, thank you for thank you for coming on we appreciate your wisdom and uh you know hope, hopefully we can do it again sometime yeah. definitely thanks for Take what you're doing together. take care all right thank you bye. bye and that'll do it for us thank you so much to dr canada for giving us her wisdom and some of her time hope you guys got a lot out of this episode i know we did it was a great talk if you guys like what we're doing check out the rest of our episodes on our website orthotalkpod.com you can get in touch with us on twitter at orthotalkpod you can email us the orthopodcast at gmail.com if you really like what we're doing please leave us five stars on itunes it really does help us out you can catch all of our videos on our youtube channel just youtube the orthotalk podcast and there will be all 23 of our episodes so hope you guys are enjoying what we're doing and thank you for the opportunity